Off season has hardly started, but we've already talked about our top 10 MotoGP riders from the 2021 season that has just gone with us at therace.com. Simon Patterson, Valentin Harunshi, and myself, Toby Moody, bringing you a little bit of news because, as you will have read on our website and through social media, KTM have parted company with their team manager in MotoGP, Mike Leitner, a GP man for many years after being a 1-2-5 rider. He was a suspension man, crew chief to Danny Pedrosa, from when he won his very first race on a 250cc bike in 2004. That was at Velcom in South Africa. And Leitner stayed with Pedrosa right through to the end of 2014 at Repsol Honda. He started at KTM in 2015. He was one of the first people on the project. But it's all come to a grinding halt because Pramac Ducati's Francesco Guidotti is now stepping in to the orange camp at KTM. Simon, was this a surprise to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this came as a, a complete bolt out of the blue. Uh, there have been some whispers and some rumours from some of my contacts within KTM for a while about uh, them not being particularly happy with Mike Leitner. But those have been whispers and rumours that have come from the lower end of the project, not the top end of the project. And as we generally know, race teams uh, employ managers who are sometimes not the nicest people to work with, um, CC Repsol Honda. But as long as the job gets done, no one really cares uh, at a senior level. Um, throughout the majority of the project, up until this point, Mike Leitner has done a good job. Uh, he's taken them from brand new in the grid to race winners multiple times in a season last year. But this year has been a disaster, arguably, um, and obviously something someone has decided that something needs to change to fix that for next year, and it's come as a rather unexpected management uh, chop. Some people would say that two Grand Prix victories is not quite a disaster, but I know what you mean, Simon, so don't jump down my throat quite yet. You know, they did win that Catalan race with, uh, with Miguel Oliveira, fantastically so as you know I keep banging on about it he won on a dry day in a straight fight it was fantastic and and absolutely we all thought that it was it was going to go like that I seem to remember after Catalonia on the Monday when we did our podcast I sort of whispered do you know what if the win goes the right way is he a championship contender and you quite rightly said no but at least I had to put it out there yes they also won with Brad Binder on a KTM at the Red Bull Ring in Austria but that was a wet race. It was a gamble. He stayed out on the tar and he won the race. But it does say on this piece of paper here that they won two Grand Prix. But I look at the at the Oliveira Catalonia victory of as a bit of a they've arrived. But then, of course, what you're saying is the wheels came off so quickly. Well, it, it's not even that for me. It's that the 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 KTM have arrived victory wasn't. Oliveira at Catalonia this year it was Oliveira at Portimao last year it was the final race of the year last year when he he won an absolutely dominant form KTM's third win of the season after uh, Binder had won in in Brno and after Oliveira had won that you know great last lap last corner scrap at Austria they, they did their arriving last year and they were turning up this year expecting to fight for championships so to lose the first third of the season to a bike that didn't work with the tire allocation and then to lose 
literally the entire second half of the season to, like you say, to the wheels completely falling off the project, I understand why senior management aren't very happy. I mean, if we look at the traditional the traditional way a MotoGP manufacturer seems to evolve towards championship contention, it it from the upstarts it goes something like this. You're not competitive anywhere, then you're competitive at some tracks where you're really good but not really competitive anywhere else. Then you're competitive in most places but have some bogey tracks, and finally you're good everywhere. Ducati has now reached the the good everywhere part. KTM looked at the very least like even last year, it looked like there were no bogey tracks left, and there were real, real strongholds, including obviously home track Red Bull Ring, where uh, Oliveira won, where I think Paul had the pace to win twice, maybe even. And and this year, we've seen the KTM good a couple of times, but it it feels like the bogey tracks were back, and just the general level of performance was. I'd say deeply unimpressive because more often than not, we saw all four KTMs in Q1 and often struggling to make it out of Q1. On on the better days, we saw one KTM max usually in Q2. That's just not good enough. So uh, MotoGP is, you know, when it comes to team bosses and stuff, they seem to be more protected than maybe in other sports that I follow. Like in football, you can go after just five bad games or something like that. But yeah, as a football fan... I am not surprised that this resulted in somebody being moved aside. It's not a good season. When you have not a good season, you have a switch. And as a KTM person who's worked with the boards, I'm not surprised that they've also moved him on as well. They 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 can, you know, bring the guillotine down very very quickly. Uh, Dieter Stappard was involved with KTM with the junior one two five team back in oh three oh four. Uh, Stefan Bradl was one of the three junior riders for that project. It was a three-year project, but it got cut before the end of those three years. And Dieter Stappard, who who had run BMW Motorsport in the uh, early mid-80s, um, did deals with Bernie Eccleston to put BMW engines in a, in a, in a Brabham that then won the championship. So he he had dealt with some very hard people in his in his professional career. But he said to me, he said, Toby... I've never taken anybody to court, and I'm so disappointed that the first person I have to take to court in motorsport is KTM because they've done the dirty on me. Now, he said that as an Austrian, and he thought that he had a good relationship, but for whatever reason, it wasn't working for the board, and business is business, and all of those you know, hard lines mean that the morals go out of the window. But Simon... KTM this year have had their first year without concessions. They weren't allowed to do the extra testing, no limit on tyres. They had to do it with a reduced number of engines and such like. So, And, of course, they lost Bruno, where they had a lot of data because they did test a lot at Bruno because Bruno wasn't in this year's championship calendar. That might have bitten them as well. Arguably, yes, that has played a part in it. Um I think that's related to something that I've talked about before in the podcast about KTM's way of developing a bike. They they like to do new things. Uh, they like to do what you caddy do. They like to experiment. They like to innovate. They like to throw money at solutions. And yeah, maybe what we're seeing is uh, a lack of the ability to do that in the same way this year now that they can't develop with their racers, now that everything is being put in the shoulders of Danny Pedrosa and Mika Calio, I am certain, I'm absolutely certain, 
that the decision of Pedroza to do a wild card in Austria after years of saying, oh, I don't really want to do a wild card was probably related to losing their concession status because it's the only way that they have to let him do a bit more test and, you know, to, in that environment with the racers, whatever. So, yeah, they're struggling. But an, another factor as well, I think, is losing Paul Espigaro. Um, he's been the guy at the front leading the development process for them for all these years. And they they lost him to Repsol Honda. They they didn't, you know, they, they lost that figurehead, really. Because while they've got an experienced team, it's worth remembering they are all quite young. They are all quite inexperienced. Uh, the, you know, the oldest guy in the team this year is Danilo Petrucci, who, um, the, there's a feature coming later this weekend on the, on the race website, talking about how useless he felt within KTM this year, because he didn't get a chance to do the development role he was brought on to do because of various difficulties. So I, I, I think pinning in concession status alone is a bit unfair, there are a lot of factors, but it is definitely one of the factors. Uh, definitely, I mean, we, we touched upon this in the in the top ten podcast a bit, obviously, but I it it does feel like losing Paul has been a big thing, just because, as I said before, when you looked at the timesheets last year, more often than not, Paul was the guy, the guy who getting the most out of the RC sixteen at most tracks, and certainly in practice and in qualifying in the races, obviously, sometimes you'll see someone amazing from Brad Bender that Paul can't quite access in terms of Sunday pace but and I, I think in MotoGP it really does help when you have the guy who can be your reference point I mean all all manufacturers right now who are persevering seem to have their their guy uh, you know Peko for Ducati Fabio for Yamaha Mark for Honda there's you know there's a drawback to that when your guy gets hurt and suddenly you're flailing about in the wilderness that was also the case i remember how big of a problem it was for ktm when paul would get hurt like it was a genuine genuine moment of well, i wouldn't say panic but the team bosses were pretty open and oh this this screws us this is a huge problem uh ktm now has a lot more depth and talent but the there's no obvious figurehead just yet and going by going by brad's 2024 contract brad is probably the intended figurehead, but he still needs time. Maybe Raul Fernandez is the figurehead, but he wants to ride for someone else, I think. So, you know, it's complicated. That's kind of the thing, isn't it? We've talked a lot about their their strength, their depth and numbers that they've got now, and, and almost the problems it's caused them with trying to find spaces in the grid for all these guys. But at the same time, there isn't that one standout talent yet. There are guys in the junior ranks who they have to try really hard to keep um, to be that guy. But, you know, arguably with the benefit of hindsight, which is obviously always easy, looking back on the last few years now, did they lose the person they really needed whenever Jorge Martin signed a Ducati contract? Would he have been the figurehead of the team right now if he'd stayed? Because arguably, I think he'd be on track to be in it, yeah. Um, because none of those other guys stand out. They're all exceptionally talented, but you need to be beyond exceptionally talented right now to 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 be, you know, a championship contender. You need to be a Mir, a a Quattararo, or a Bagnaya. They don't have one of those. Coming back to KTM management structure, 
we mentioned at the top of the broadcast podcast that uh, Guidotti is coming into KTM. What do you think that that move means for KTM? That's a very different kind of guy. I mean, and Francesco, he's a he's a very easy guy to get on with. He, he at least out of the garage. I've never worked for Pramac Ducati. Nobody on this podcast has, but. I've known him a while. I've known him when before he went to KTM in the in the early zeros, and he's always been utterly charming. And that air carries through the paddock, or is that just my impression? What's your impression? One hundred percent. And I think what we're seeing is KTM learning a lesson, maybe from some of the other teams in the paddock, in terms of who who actually does well running a team. Um, they have signed a guy that is. Super friendly, super cheerful, super motivated. Uh, a really, really good guy to work with. Um, from everything I've seen from the outside looking in, he is just an exceptionally good person to have running your team. He is in the mold of Davide Brivio. And I think KTM have to be looking at what has been done at Suzuki by Brivio and thought we need us one of them. Uh, the same applies at Aprilia. Uh, the same applies at Ducati, arguably. Uh, they both have ha- had engineers running the team. And engineers are very good at building motorbikes, but they're not necessarily very good at, at managing the people that ride the motorbikes in particular. Ducati's strength comes from having Gigi Deligna solely running the technical side and then having the double act of Tardazzi and Sabati running the race team. And they're very, very good at it. There is. It's not a coincidence that Aprilia's results suddenly started improving very rapidly whenever they said to Romano Albiciano, you're not going to run the team anymore, you're just going to build the bike. And they brought in Massimo Rivola, who is a little bit quieter, but is also very much in the mold of, of the uh, the Chibati, the Tardazzi, the Brivio, the, the Guidotti. He's that kind of friendly, cheerful, quite happy, you know, good person to have. Um, so, yeah, I think they've learned their lesson, and I hope it works for them. I think it looks like a correction, too, but just f- from a wider point, this is something I've I've believed for a bit now. Uh, when I was at university, when we were doing sociology, there was a discussion of a paradigm shift between styles of leadership from one that's very much focused on keeping people in line with an iron fist and serious repercussions for underperformance to the one that seeks to build up and inspire staffers and all that sort of thing have them believe in the project and have them not be afraid to fail you know people talk about no blame culture a lot maybe a little bit too much because it's ultimately for one it's a thing people aspire to and for another you do have to have some blame sometimes because sometimes people just don't don't do the thing but i i do think there's a longer term slow but inevitable shift towards team managers who are personable and who the people who work under them like to work under and aren't afraid of as a boss. I think that's a long, longer term thing that's happening. And I, I, I can't say much about Leitner. I know that KTM in general has this sort of very corporate and very, very, I don't want to say stiff, but sort of it, it doesn't sound like the easiest place to work at. It sounds very demanding and maybe a bit, maybe there's a bit of fear. I don't know. It's hard to say from what you guys have said. That's that's what it sounds like sometimes. And I think a, a personable family-like guy like Guidotti, I think that's going to be, I think that's going to be big. I think that's a correction that that is going to work. 
without going too much into national stereotypes, um, th there's you know there's a reason that all of the Japanese teams in the paddock have put a European in charge of running the day to day operations, and there is also you know it's also the case that KTM are probably the most Japanese t European team in the way that they run things. They are you know th there is a Germanic stereotype that they fit to. It is. A difficult place to work and by all accounts um from from a few of the people i know inside the team it hasn't been an easy place to work under mike leitner he hasn't been a particularly well-liked boss um which doesn't build lots of the things you need to make a successful team you need a happy atmosphere in the garage. You need you need motivated people, and motivation doesn't come. You know, the, the beatings will con will continue until morale improves. Doesn't work. It's not the attitude that, that, that <laughs> runs the like successor no. team. So um, no. I I think yeah, Guidotti is the right person for the job. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's all sorts of of, of, of different team management styles and it's also a generational thing as well because when hrc started you know aguma san walked into the garage once and stood in front of of wayne gardner and said wayne san necessary faster now we can kind of laugh about that but he had beyond massive respect he i, I never met the guy i'm i've read pages and pages about Aguma San because he started HRC and he's, he did what he did. Wayne San, necessary faster. I mean, three words that just, whoa, but that was in the early 80s. That's 40 years ago. Nowadays, you read up about James Allison, who works at Mercedes AMG Formula One in Brackley in the UK, from a technical point of view and a managerial point of view and, you know, Right, something's gone wrong. We're not going to, as you say, Simon, you know, beat the poor person because they've made this, the, 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 the hub wrong. What went wrong? Why did it go wrong? Let's not let that happen again. And they kind of take the characters out of it. And another thing that I listened to, which was a podcast with a friend of mine called Mark Gallagher and then Jonathan Ledyard, a name you, you've recognised from broadcasting. And they interviewed not only James Allison, but also the guy in charge of Top Gun, the whole, you know, Tom Cruise thing, but in real life. And they go out and they practice the dog McQuarrie? fights. Christopher McQuarrie? I'm sorry? No. Is it Christopher McQuarrie? No, I think I think, I think Toby means the uh, US Navy Fighter Warfare School and not the Tom Cruise movie. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Val went down a Hollywood road there. <laughs> Uh, bit of bit of uh, inside info. My microphone is currently propped up on a DVD case of all the Mission Impossible movies, so that that tells you where I'm coming from. Okay, right. <laughs> Meanwhile, back on planet Earth, uh, they were interviewing the the guy in charge of the real Top Gun Academy, and they go out and they do their practicing, and they come back. And if there's a problem, there might be a bit of an edge in the debrief room. And they take the names out of it. You know, they use their call sign. They use the number of the aeroplane, the number of the pilot, whatever. It is. They don't call him Simon or Toby or Val. And there might be an argument, but he says, we have it. We have the argument and we don't leave the room until it's clear. Um, so it's interesting, the different philosophies of, of, of management now. And, you know, you know, shouting at people and getting angry doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You know, how many uh, we've all been shouted at in our lives and 
you know, we've, we've shouted at other people, but we learn from it and we try and we don't do it again. We don't do it again. And it's not big and it's not clever. And to pick up on your F1 example, Toby, I'm just from the outside looking in, I don't work in F1. I don't know any of the personalities personally, but the, the impression I get from people like Toto Wolf is that he would punch Christian Horner to defend his drivers. Yes. And, and that's, absolutely. you know, that is the exact attitude you want in a team boss. You want that sort of loyalty because it's a two way street. Mm-hmm. And and Guidotti is someone that I think will bring that. And just to yeah. just to because uh, Simon earlier started a, a sentence with not to go too much into national stereotypes, which yeah, just to sort of counter that, Toto Wolf is of course Austrian. So yeah, KTM can absolutely find somebody like that in Austria. But you know, I decided to go with an Italian with MotoGP experience who's that kind of mold, the family, uh, family oriented guy. And it, I think it's going to work real. I think it's going to work real well. I think it's going to be great. I, I think the, the thing about cultural stereotypes or national stereotypes in MotoGP is that they, they generally tend to apply more across brands than personalities, actual people, because the most on Japanese person in the paddock is Sunichi Sahara. But you would say that Suzuki are the most sort of Japanese conservative team. So I, I, I think very much it doesn't apply on a personal level. But, you know, more more as a, a sort of a team dynamic, team ethos thing. And on that note, Simon caught up with Francesco Guidotti earlier this week. And this is what the Italian had to say. It's an amazing company. It's uh, what, they, what they've done, what they do. It's, uh, it's uh, insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everywhere. I mean, yeah, everywhere. I'm a... Uh, I'm a fan of off-road, so I really know where where they are and uh, what they do. And it's uh, it's crazy. <laughs> it's, uh, it's something. I mean, that's, for a European company, something really really unbelievable. Yes. So, yeah, let's start a new a new challenge. Good, good. What uh, what are the things to fix? Have you spent much time thinking about it? Well, no, because there was no time. Yeah. There was no time. So once they once they called me, then we we made a decision very very quickly. Yeah. And to be honest, I know them. I've yes. spent uh, four years, uh, some years ago. So old man, I mean the the structure is completely different. The key people is still uh, are still there. Yeah. So it was very very easy to go to the. To the to the points and to the and to the important uh, issues, mm-hmm. uh, we we understand each other very very quickly. We know each other very well. So yeah, yeah. And you you get to work with uh, one of your old riders, I guess. I guess Mika. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's uh, on the test team. Yeah, and uh, it's not it's not my. <laughs> priority to follow the testing yeah. and all the technical issues but yes of course there's uh there will be there will be a reunion a sort of reunion <laughs> <laughs> of the old days absolutely <laughs> yeah it's it seems like uh that is that's a good thing uh that you join to not look at the technical things to kind of split the team in two i guess because there's always been an engineer running it and Sometimes that's a lot of responsibility for one person. Yeah, I mean, uh, now, now it's, uh, everything is so is so uh, difficult to be to be already 
uh, well prepared in one position, then uh, that cover more than one position is almost impossible. Yeah. Uh, you for sure miss something. Yeah. And uh, everybody has to, to have clear, need to have clear his position, professional in that, uh, in that part of the project, go deep in the, in the, in the, in the, in the problems so, or, or to, or to solve, uh, to solve uh, uh, technical issue before they, they come. And uh, yeah, cover more than one position at the moment at this level. It's, it's almost impossible. How do you think the rider management has 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 gone well with Pramac Ducati with Guidotti, who is now going to be at KTM? What do you think is a is a magic key? Is it just that kind of fun element? Is it the underdog element at Pramac compared with the works team? What do you think, Simon? Uh, I don't think it's a, a necessarily an underdog thing because at the end of the day, the whole modern MotoGP structure of factory bikes and satellite teams was invented by Pramac and Ducati. So if anything, they've been leading the charge in terms of not being underdogs, in terms of being a part of the factory structure. Uh, and that that factory structure in a satellite team thing is a large part of the reason for their success of late. Uh, but that is something that happened under Godotti's leadership. It's something that he helped make happen. So that is a good sign. And it's it's probably something that Herbie Poncherao is rubbing his hands looking at right now, uh, seeing an even closer link between his Satellite Tech 3 team and the factory KTM MotoGP team going forward. But Guidotti has, you know, th- that team f- still feels like a family team. Uh, the Probably the most telling thing that, that we can say at the minute is the fact that if you look on Instagram, it's full of pictures of, I think, 15 of the Pramac team in the Dominican Republic on holidays with uh, Jorge Martin, paid for by Jorge Martin for the entire team out of his win bonus because he promised them if he won a race, he'd take them on holidays. So that that says more than anything that we can talk about. That says a lot about, about the nature of that team. Um, it's something that uh, I, I spoke to Jorge. We did an interview a few weeks ago, just before the end of the season, and he talked a lot about that that feeling in the team and about how important that was for his successes this year. About how much a part of his success he feels is down to that, and it's something that obviously you can't replicate in a factory team, not not to the full extent. It's just the nature of factory teams, but you can take elements of it and there are teams in MotoGP factory teams in MotoGP that do take elements of it it's something that when you listen to uh, Alessia Espagaro and Maverick Vignale's talk at the minute it's something that Aprilia have done reasonably well of late so if he can bring some of that atmosphere some of that that stress relief that comes from being in that environment into the team then 100% it will do them good Atmosphere is everything. Uh, you know, as a journalist, we can drift between the back of garages like butterflies. Uh, in the older days, it was a lot easier to go into the garages. I, I'm a bit more respectful about going into garages nowadays because when they say don't come in, they mean it. Um, and having been in a team, people just walking in, who are you? Who are you? Um, when the bike's completely apart and the secret's on show. Um, but with, with with regards to atmosphere, Red Bull Yamaha and Team Roberts were some of the best 
garages I ever I ever walked into because it was just a good atmosphere and everybody worked that extra hour two three midnight two o'clock in the morning or beyond um, and I've worked in rally teams I've worked in a MotoGP team I'm working in another rally team and and it's atmosphere is everything you can't buy it you it's just more than the sum of the parts isn't it and just coming back maybe five or ten minutes to what you said Val about you know the what it, what what you've heard about the atmosphere is like in KTM. You know, it's 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 good fun. You know, I've worked there as you know, and it's it's good fun, and we all help each other, and it all got through in that first year, and it and it's a it's a it, for me it was a privilege to be part of of something so potentially big. It was even big then, and you know, big sponsors, good looking bike. Uh, all that hospitality stuff that I was involved with was was I was very proud of it. Um, coming back to the win bonus thing with Jorge Martin on the beach with all his mechanics. First of all, I saw that last night and I just went, "Isn't that just fantastic?" Not only is that guy going to be a world champion with what he does on the racetrack, but he's going to be another. He's going to get another world championship because his mechanics are going to work extra hard. That's not a bribe. It's just an atmosphere. Rumours that when Nigel Manson won the World Championship, he went around the garage and he said, what's your mortgage? And he paid all the mechanics' mortgages off. Uh, Kevin Schwantz gave $25,000 to each mechanic in 1993. That was a lot of money. A lot of money now, a lot of money then. Um, and other people, they leave the team after having had a good year, not necessarily a championship, and they walk in with a bottle of fizzy and some plastic cups and go, do you want a drink? <laughs> it, it, it's absolutely 180 degrees different, but Jorge Martin has got it right. No, I, I do think that with Pramac, it is important. Like, like Simon said, it's not all about being an underdog, but I think it's about, it's not so much about the underdog thing, but there's also the, I can't think of a recent, like real sustained stretch of difficulty for Pramac. I can't think of a moment where they were in the firing line. I can't, the, the thing I can think of most recently is that Bagnaia's first season wasn't very good and there might have been questions mar- question marks from Ducati then because obviously Ducati had a lot of faith in him in a long-term contract and there was the very brief situation with uh, the potential replacement of Jack Miller for Jorge Lorenzo at the team that was briefly, briefly rumored and that the Pramac team boss had to talk about and make it specifically very clear that he did not want that. But beyond those two minor flashpoints, just it's easier to be Pramac than KTM. I don't think that's a particularly controversial viewpoint because when when the Ducati camp is failing, the pressure's on the works Ducati team. It's not Pramac that's going to go in the firing line when it comes to the media and stuff like that. If you know if Andrea Dovizioso and Danilo Petrucci are struggling, they're the ones who are going to take the brunt of it, not Jack Miller and Pecco Bagnaia. Uh, we haven't really. We haven't seen Pramac tested like a works team will be tested just because of, just because it isn't. It's the second in command. It has the shield of the factory team. And if the factory team is doing well and Pramac isn't, which to be fair, we have not seen recently that kind of thing because Pramac has been doing well reliably. But if that kind of split were to happen, the pressure on Pramac is less because Ducati is thrilled with how the factory team is doing. The the other thing that I think is worth throwing out there, and Toby, this is something you'll agree with me on, I think. Um, the people that Guidotti has to work with to try and get some of that atmosphere back, there are some good people on that team for it. Um, you know, there's a lot of that squad who 
who are all Lincolnshire lads who who came with Mike Leitner, who are ex Repsol Honda, who are ex Honda UK, who are complete characters who love a joke, love a laugh, who almost feel a little. You almost look at them and think you're you're a little bit too not laid back, but just you don't quite fit the um the factory team mold. The you know the Johnny Airs and the the Lloyds and the, they're good characters, and I think that um we're going to see Mike Leitner get the best out of those people. Sorry, Francesco Godotti get the best out of those people. Correct, correct. And like anything in life, when it's time to be serious, it's ultra serious. Um, But yeah, as you say, uh, uh, Mark Lloyd, Johnny Eyre, Daniel Petak, Checkmate. Everyone's got a nickname, of course, Florian. Checkmate. Checkmate. We called him Dubrovnik because... Uh, it annoyed him because it wasn't in the Czech Republic, but we just thought it was, so we just called it. We could, and he, you know, it, it, but he take he took it on the chin, yeah. and we laughed, we laughed. You know, um, yeah. they'd take the yeah. mick out of me with yeah. my garage tours when everybody had left, and they still take the mick out of me today, and it's hilarious, and we laugh like hyenas. Um, something like eleven different nationalities in the garage, off the top of my head. Uh, from when I was involved, and there are probably even more uh, uh, more now. Um, but yeah, it, 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 that that, um, that buoyancy of, of atmosphere is is quite something. Just looking at it from the Austrian point of view for a minute, you know, I could ask, has Mike Leitner's tenure been a success? Now it's very, very, very easy to criticise. It's just too easy nowadays. Podcasts, social media, ah, um, who else could have done a better job? Who else was on hand? Who was available? It was him. Um, so actually, you know, I don't, I don't want to be a negative bashing podcast. I I think that Mike Leitner's tenure has been a massive success. That's the thing. I think up until the first race of this year, from the moment that KTM announced they'd signed him to lead their MotoGP project, they've done a remarkable job. They've they've. Uh, They've surpassed my expectations. They've done it quicker than I thought it, they'd be able to do it. They've made, you know, they've made progress. They they did it. Uh, they signed two solid riders. They learned what they were doing. They built a bike that got better and better. They started getting the odd podium. Then they were consistently in the podium. Then they were consistently winning races. Up until this year, it went really well. And I wonder if Mike Leitner's departure is because of, almost because of hubris. It's because they've surpassed their own expectations to the point where this year was expected to be a championship contending year. And arguably they're, they're, you know, too far ahead of themselves, tripping on their own feet, trying to do better than the project needs to be doing at this point. I'm, I agree with the success part. I think massive. I still struggle to to get to towns with obviously not every uh, MotoGP manufacturer wins uh, five races, I mean, that's already a lot, so you can't really be too critical of that. But I remember a couple of years back, maybe three years back, and I'd, I'd worked at, a, at another place then where we were covering MotoGP, and I remember getting a bit frustrated with the amount of KTM coverage they've done because we've done because my feeling was they've not earned it, they've not justified it, they've not made enough progress for the aims that they came in with and for, for the money that they're spending. Now... Very soon after that, KTM came good, pretty pretty spectacularly. And that that was uh, it was obvious that they were already going somewhere good end of twenty nineteen. Then they were really good through twenty twenty. But 
I don't know, you, you, you say they've surpassed your expectations. I realize it's really hard to build a program uh, from the ground up, and that's sort of the advantage that Suzuki's revival will have had and many other programs all those, all those years of inbuilt experience, MotoGP experience, having it on hand. And yet, still, you know, they've, been, they've already been here a while. There's, I don't know. They've they've spent a lot of money and they've already been here a while. And there's there's got to be a reason why they haven't been able to lure over every rider target that they wanted to lure over, and that's because they're still not the you know they're 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 maybe not growing as fast as some of the riders would want to see, and maybe as I want to see. I I've just realized something, and I had to like quickly double check it because I I didn't think it was actually true. But KTM have won more races in their two in the last two years than Suzuki have won in the entire four stroke MotoGP era. Suzuki, yeah. But but Suzuki have won. You're a in my head. You know, that's in the crazy. four stroke. <laughs> in the four stroke yeah. era, yeah. yeah. That's crazy when you think about it, and that that to me shows. Uh, you know how competitive the project is but obviously things haven't aligned in the way that that they would have wanted them to and suzuki have a title and they don't mm, and mm. at the end of the day we're we're not here to mm. win races we're here to win titles aren't we wait 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 wait! how many how many wins does suzuki have in the four stroke let's let's get to the bottom of this is it four four uh s- yeah, yeah. Is they it, didn't, didn't win a race until didn't Vermeulen win nope. in the wet at some point. Podiums, isn't it five then? V- Vermeulen, Vinales, two rins, uh, one mirror. Uh, Vinales won at Silverstone. Different mirror, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Goodness me, yeah, yeah. Simon's looking it up, but yeah, what a you're in my head, uh, absolutely, absolutely in my head. Um, so yeah, it's not easy, and also, what isn't. Sorry, there is. There's a single Vermeulen win that ties them. Okay, right. <clears throat> okay, but but point point made. The the Vermeulen win was what? I knew it. Oh six. I knew it. Oh seven yeah. off the top. Oh six. Yeah, but point remember. made. It's yeah. still a very good point. What would have been very interesting to know is what the upper management, the board of KTM, were thinking at Portimao, the penultimate race this year. And then the finale in Valencia, because in Portomayo, they won the Moto3 World Championship. In Valencia, they won the Moto2 Championship. So everything is just going at full speed. And then something changed. Something changed in the big team. So, um, you know, they're very determined. You know, Mr. Pira, Mr. Trunkenpoltz, Pitt Byra, Jens Heinbach. They're very, very determined and they, they're doing everything else but that last piece of the puzzle, which is arguably, without doubt, the hardest piece of the puzzle, is uh, is the is the bit that they've yet got to find. You know, they've climbed Mont Blanc, they've climbed the Grossglockner in in terms of motorsport, they've climbed K two, but Everest is the last mountain that they are yet to climb. So they will do anything they can to uh, to make that happen. Um, what about other people that are involved at Matikoffen in Austria? It's about 40 minutes away from, from Salzburg. You know, Fabio Stelacchini, what, what do you know about him and his role there and how he will get hand in glove with Guidotti? So he, he has come from Ducati 
Um, he has come as Gigi Delinia's right-hand man, essentially, which is a, a pretty solid line to have in your CV. And he is slotted into a role that's actually was originally the, the sort of the level between uh, head of motorsport pit buyer and Mike Leitner. It was a, a head of motorsport technology, I think is his job title, something like that. So he's he's more senior to it was more senior to Leitner and will remain more senior to Guidotti. And from what I understand, this is um, this is one of his decisions. Um, one of his first major changes is this. Um, which I think is uh, is interesting because it fits really with what we've said about someone coming into the team and realizing that things weren't quite right and and that a different type of personality was needed. So it, you know, uh, that is an immediately big change to make. Um, but but he's also there as a a kind of a I think a figure to draw together all the various various disparate threads of their MotoGP project because. KTM, more than maybe any other brand in the championship, has has very strong personalities running all of their different elements of their MotoGP project. Um, you know, they, they have uh, Kurt Tribe running engine development, who, who runs a very good ship. They have uh, Wolfgang Felber running chassis development, who is a, a strong character. Um, but, but they've almost always felt like they're guys who run their own teams without someone to lead everything. Um, and I guess in theory, that's Pitt Byer's job, but Pitt is a busy man with a lot of projects. You know, he's not going to be thinking about MotoGP for the next three months. He's got Dakar to win. Uh, and then as soon as Dakar's finished, he's got an AMA Supercross championship to win. There's a lot going on in his life beyond just um beyond just motor gp yeah I don't, I don't i don't think he quite parks motor gp for three months but i know what you're saying yeah <laughs> no but but you know what i mean yeah. it's not the focus yeah. it's not the it's not the number one priority is it especially with dakar yeah, yeah. the work he's done for dakar by now because everything's on the trucks and stefan huber is the kind of team manager of the dakar project so but i know what you're saying in a roundabout way i know there's a lot on his plate there's an awful lot on his plate um so uh so yeah who who do you think might replace guidotti at pramac it, that's a bigger question now isn't it well th- there's lots of rumors going around that um fonzie nieto who's ex-grand prix rider uh son of of angel who is their team uh rider performance analyst there's rumors during the rounds that he's going to be the new team manager the rumors are from what i hear from inside the team 100 not true um, so if you've read that on other publications and not on the race, there's a reason you've not read it on the race. Um, he will get more responsibility, but from what I hear, they're they're going to do a bit of promotion from within um, and, and move up some people who I can't quite name yet, uh, who will, who will take on the sort of the team leader role, but it'll remain Italian. It'll remain very Pramac within the squad. Well, there's been quite a lot going on in the world of KTM MotoGP since the final race of 2021 and with new beginnings with their team management for next season and, of course, as the overriding view of the four riders that they've got in 2022, 50% of them being brand new into the class in the shape of Fernandez and Gardner, who, of course, will be in Tech 3 rather than the works Red Bull KTM squad. It's going to be a very interesting time 
Um, my gut move, my gut feeling is Guidotti is he's a good man. I think he's the right man. He's had a huge amount of experience. He's only 46, 47 years old off the top of my head. So he's got a lot of time on, on his side. He's 12, 13 years younger than the outgoing lightness. So he, he missed out on maybe that, as you touched on earlier, Simon, the shouting part of management mentality that was early 80s, late 80s or so. Um, we don't need, you know, lots of meetings every five minutes. Are you okay? Do you want a warm drink? Uh, but people do need to be listened to and, and not shouted at nowadays. So it'll be interesting to see how that all, all pans out. Okay, thank you so much for joining us here with our race podcast for Murder GP. Do keep in touch with the website. Simon's got some stuff going up. Val's got some stuff going up. This, by the way, is being recorded before the Formula One finale. So any reference we've made to Formula One, we don't know what's going to happen with the championship in 2021, except it's going to be very close come uh, the final race in Abu Dhabi. So keep in touch with all of our news on our website and other podcasts as well. From Valentin Harunchi, Simon Patterson and myself, Toby Moody, thanks for joining us. Speak to you soon. Mm-hmm.